This is Brojo Online. Masculinity, confidence, and integrity with Dan Monroe. What's up everybody? Welcome back to Brojo Online. And this is what I'd call a special episode because it's just a random thing that's occurred to me and I just like had to get it off my chest. I'm reading the book Sapiens at the moment. Highly recommend this. Highly, highly recommend this read by Yuval Noah Harari. And it's all about the the history of human evolution, where humans as Homo sapiens came from and how we got to where we are. And there's some really uh, shocking claims made in the book, essentially, about why we are the way we are and the kind of traps we've fallen into as a species. And the one of the ones that I want to talk about today is rules, which in the book um, Harari refers to as intersubjectivity. So I'm going to be talking about the rules you follow today. There's many of them. They completely run your life. And becoming aware of them and knowing how to work in, around, and through these rules opens up your freedom in a way that only you can do. And if you don't, if you, if you're unaware of these rules that you're following, these intersubjective, essentially fictional rules that you're following, your life's severely constrained and your misery will be compounded. So that's what I want to talk about today. I'm not sure where I'm going with this talk. It doesn't really have a point. It's more about just a recognition of something that probably controls your life more than anything else. In fact, it will control your decision making in your life even more than the real physical world will. So I'm talking about something that has more control over you than gravity and oxygen. Okay, You live in a fiction. You can't escape that fiction. It's like the Matrix. You're plugged into it. But it's very good to be aware that it's not real, because then you know at least your range of options. I'm going to talk about what that fiction is today, and this isn't some conspiracy theory bullshit. This is simple acknowledgement of the truth, because as truthful as we try to be, we cannot deny that we live in an untruthful world. We live in a fantasy, a fictional world that does not exist in objective reality. I'm going to expand on the ideas from Sapiens, the book here, um, and we need to talk about the difference between objective, subjective, and then intersubjective, which is intersubjective is what we're focusing on today. So objective is something that can exist without agreement and without belief. Gravity, for example. You don't have to believe in gravity to be stuck to the earth. The whole planet of humans could disagree that gravity exists and they're still going to be stuck to the earth. Gravity exists with or without our permission, with or without our faith, it is there. Trees exist with or without us. The need to eat, you don't have to believe in it, but you'll die if you don't. Simple as that. Every time, every single human who's ever decided to stop eating has ended up dying. These are things that you'd call objective truths. No matter what we do about them, uh, no matter how many people believe or disbelieve them, whether you die and you take your belief with you, the thing still continues to exist. It's an objective truth, what I like to call reality. Then there are subjective truths, uh, most commonly called beliefs. And subjective particularly means an individual belief, something that if you die, the belief dies with you. For example, if I have a fear of public speaking, if I believe that public speaking is dangerous, it doesn't actually make it dangerous. 
I just believe it is. And if I stop believing it, or if I die, the danger of public speaking dies with me, or dies with the, the end of the belief. If, for example, I go and do a lot of public speaking and find it enjoyable, the belief that public speaking, the truth, I guess, that public speaking is dangerous, dies. And it's replaced by a new and equally fictional truth, that public speaking is enjoyable. Whereas public speaking is just a person talking on stage, there's no further explanation to it than that, an objective reality. Voices in your head, if I'm schizophrenic, the voices in my head only belong to me, they only exist in my reality. If I die, they die with me, and nobody else um, confirms their existence. There's no way to measure that they exist. They are only in my head. An unshared philosophy is a subjective truth. If I believe the world is a certain way because of X, Y, and Z, that belief is not objective. You cannot measure it in any way like you can measure gravity or a tree. And if I die, that belief dies with me. If I change my belief, it goes away. The truth changes. So that's a subjective truth, where it just belongs to you and you alone, to the point where if you die, it dies with you. Okay? It doesn't continue being true outside of your presence. And then there's intersubjective. Now, intersubjective are also not objective, which means they are not measurable, these beliefs. But if you stop believing, they continue without you. Obvious ones are religion and philosophy. Christianity, for example. You cannot actually show me Christianity on a plate. You can show me churches. You can show me Bibles. You can show me people who call themselves Christians and go to these churches and read these Bibles. But there is actually no such thing as Christianity. There is no one objective truth. If all the Christians die, Christianity dies with them. So religion is an intersubjective truth in that if one Christian dies, Christianity is unaffected by that. It continues without them. If one Christian loses faith, Christianity still thrives. So Christianity is not affected by the individual, but it is still not an objective truth. Right? There's 10,000 years ago, there was no Christianity. It has not been around like gravity. Philosophy is another one. I'm a particular uh, fan of the Stoic philosophy, but it doesn't exist anywhere. It's just thoughts in people's heads. There is no measurable evidence of Stoic philosophy actually existing. And if all the Stoic believers were to die, and all the books about Stoicism were to be burned, it would die too. It might come back. In a different form, somebody else might think of it. And as long as lots of people believe in it, no one individual's experience will affect it too badly. But ultimately, it is not real. It is a fictional concept inside, living only inside our minds. Now, these are the obvious ones. These are the ones we think, yeah, well, I know that that's a subjective belief, blah, blah, blah. What I want to talk about today, more importantly, are the ones that have gone right past your awareness you think of them as real, and yet they're not religion, they're not philosophical, they're not even political beliefs. What about money? Raise your hands if you believe in money. You believe it's real? You think when you're holding a $20 note that you're holding money? That you're holding value? That that $20 note is somehow real? There is a piece of paper with a 20 written on it, for sure. That's objective truth. But the idea that you're holding $20 in value, that's an agreement between you and everybody else. If I go, I'm going to talk about this soon, what I call the uh, isolated tribe test. If I go to an isolated tribe in the forest of New Guinea, 
who have never met civilized humans before, and I hand them a $20 note, that's not valuable to them. That will buy me nothing. Unless I can convince them it's valuable, in which case they will share an agreement, a belief about that $20 note, and then it becomes real. You know, Bitcoin and blockchain is such a great example. There is no actual money. There's not even the pretense of money with a $20 note. I think there is some real coins, perhaps, but at least with, with money, you can tell yourself the story that there's gold behind the money, you know, that the money is symbolic of some hard materials. But even the value of that gold is a subjective, intersubjective experience. Gold is just a rock. We're the ones who decide it's valuable. But Bitcoin and blockchain really finally, you know, kind of, I guess you'd say, admit the truth that there is no truth to money. Now it's just computer code, right? It's just an agreement. Anybody on a computer goes, I agree that that piece of computer code means money. So I'm going to use it, and you're going to give me a house for that piece of computer code. Now the computer code is barely even real, because that just exists in an imaginary space on the internet. Kill all computers, the code dies with it. But the house is real. So I can use an imaginary thing like money, and I can take your house away from you just by convincing you that money is real. That is an intersubjective belief. There was a time in human history where we did not have money. There was no currency. There may have still been trade, where I swap you an object of object for another object of object. But the value we consider those two objects to have as being relational to each other, that is intersubjective. When I say, hey, I'll swap you two goats for that cow, the idea that two goats are worth one cow is just an agreement between us. There is no objective truth to that. And that's what money is. It's an agreement. And this is one of the intersubjective uh, rules that I want you to be aware of. People become so attached to stockpiling money without realizing they're stockpiling an imagination, a non-physical substance. Now, we do our best to pretend it's real, don't we, with money? We have computers that tell us that there's numbers in our bank account. We have people who continuously agree to give us goods in exchange for this money. And so we constantly believe that money is real. But if everybody in the world stopped believing in money and you kept believing in it, you'd be destroyed by it. Nobody would trade with you. They have to all agree that it exists, for it to exist, and that's what makes it intersubjective. If money was real, everybody disbelieving in money wouldn't make a difference. Sports. You're not born knowing how to play cricket. And yet if you're taught how to play cricket, you can get onto a cricket pitch with total strangers and everybody will follow the same rules. Yet there is no objective truth about cricket. A person holding a piece of wood and somebody else throwing a ball at them. That's objective. But the rules as to how that happens and what everybody does in response to that behavior, that's all intersubjective. Now, if one cricket player leaves the cricket pitch, the rules don't leave with him. The rest of the people on the pitch still know what to do. So it's intersubjective. It's a set of rules that aren't real. And the, these weird examples that I'm using are simply to set a stage for this conversation because you are following rules like this all the time and you've convinced yourself that they're as real as gravity. And we're going to be soon getting into the ones that you follow that may in fact be harming your life, and yet they're not real. Things like religion. Now I'm not going to go into a big atheist spat about how religion is bad or whatever. 
But what I will note is how people will follow religious rules, even if it harms their life, even if it harms the lives of others. Somebody who, who fully um, follows the Quran and believes in the, in, you know, in the, in Islam and is in, in Muslim as as real life things rather than seeing them as intersubjective. They might stone a woman to death because she got raped and that counts as adultery. That's the harm of following rules that aren't real. Now the woman is real and her death is very real. That's an objective truth. But the rules she broke do not exist except into the intersubjective minds of others. And the fact that you can meet another Muslim who would say, nah, I'm not going to throw a stone at that woman, that's barbaric, shows you how subjective these intersubjective rules are. Either you're supposed to stone her or you're not. While the truth is, neither of those things are true. The stoning of the woman is a completely made-up concept. You might not think of yourself as religious, but do you believe in McDonald's as a company? Where is McDonald's? Is it in the McDonald's building down the road from you? Is that why you believe in it? If I was to close that restaurant down the road from you, would McDonald's go away? Would it no longer exist? I could close every restaurant for McDonald's, and McDonald's would still exist. Now, if McDonald's dissolved the company, if they used the the bigger fiction of the law to remove McDonald's as a company, now McDonald's would no longer exist, exist but their buildings would still be there. So how would you explain that? The Aztec pyramids and the Egyptian pyramids are still there, but the Egyptian society no longer exists the way it used to, at least the pharaohs and the beliefs around that. Same with the Aztecs. So are they there or are they not? Are the Aztecs real or not? And the truth is no. There is no such thing as Aztecs. There are human beings who put a bunch of stones together in a triangle shape, for sure. That's objective truth. But calling them Aztecs and calling that a religion, that's intersubjective. We have to agree that that's the case for it to be true. What about countries? Are you loyal to your country? Why do you believe in it? We draw lines on a map that separate countries, but if you go to the actual piece of earth where that line's drawn, you'll find no line. The planet doesn't know that we have countries. If we disappear, the countries disappear with us. The dinosaurs didn't have countries. The early humans didn't have countries. But they may have had territories. Notice how countries change shape when we change each other's beliefs. Notice how the Soviet Union powerfully changed the intersubjective belief around what Russia is, and then changed it back again, or whatever happened. Your country that you would die for, that you'll hate others for entering, doesn't exist. It's a made-up line. It's a lie that you were born into. When you first started learning how to listen, how to speak, someone said, hey, by the way, you're German. Or you're Czech, you know. Or you're Nigerian. And you said, okay, fair enough. You didn't even think to question it. And yet until someone showed you on a map where Nigeria was, it wasn't a thing for you. You had to be convinced into it. And then we have to all agree that it's true. It doesn't survive the isolated tribe test. If I go to an isolated tribe member and I take them to Nigeria and we go to cross the border, the, the, the tribe member's not going to understand why we can't move from one place to the other without going through customs. Because it hasn't been explained to him yet. He hasn't been convinced 
that there are two separate countries. But once I convince him, he's going to find it very hard to get out of that belief. You know, the the San people in, in southern Africa were hunted and killed ruthlessly uh, in, in the early, I think, early 1900s or 1800s, probably throughout, because they didn't believe in property. Basically, if I see it, it's mine, was the, the San kind of concept. So if they saw you, that you had some sheep and they were hungry, they would eat your sheep. Of course, we slaughter them because we go, that's my sheep. But the idea that you own property is fictional. You don't own anything. If you owned something, then it would all disappear when you died. But it doesn't, does it? Your house is still standing if you have a heart attack in it. So you don't really own it. It isn't part of you. But if someone breaks into your property and you call the police and they arrest that person, that person goes to jail, that's because we've all agreed on the belief that that's your house. Like I said, I'm not going anywhere in particular with this rant. Just pointing out this kind of bizarre truth. We believe in a lot of things that are not real. What about your degree in accounting? You think that's valuable? You think that means you're qualified? If you were to go to the isolated tribe and hand them your degree, would they say, yeah, we trust you? No. You'd have to convince them that your degree is worth something, because to them it's just a piece of paper. It's an objective thing. But the intersubjective idea that you are somehow a qualified person because you have a degree, that's a group fiction that we all believe in. In a post-apocalyptic world, your degree is not going to be worth shit. It's going to be as valuable as money. That is worthless. If we have a nuclear war and only 3% of us survive, you better believe money is going to have no worth. You better believe your degree is going to be just a piece of paper you'd use it to wipe your ass with. You're attached to these things. You believe in them so strongly. We all do. We can't get out of this. And this is what he was saying in Sapiens. For example, well, he uses the example of uh, Peugeot, the car company. For us to get rid of the, the group belief, the intersubjective belief that Peugeot is a company, we have to use an even bigger lie, which is the law, to dissolve the company. No matter, as he puts it in the book, we just run from one prison into the yard of a bigger prison. The law is just another lie. It's a subjective truth that we've all chosen to agree upon. And you can see, because of lawyers, that we don't all agree upon it. There's a fringe of intersubjectivity, and that's what I really want to talk about today. On the edge of these group beliefs, there is flexibility. Now, I can't convince 7.2 billion people that countries don't exist. No matter how strongly I don't believe in that, they're not going to let me cross the border, and I'm going to get into all sorts of shit if I try to act like there are no countries. Okay? Trust me, I've tried. <laughs> Just move around the Schengen area in Europe, and you'll see what I'm talking about. So, I, I try to believe that there's... I, I genuinely do believe that the countries are totally fictional, and yet I am bound to that bullshit belief. Because too many other people believe it without me. And they can influence me strongly. I can't control them. So there's not much I can do about countries being real. But on the border, on the, on the flexible edge of the idea about countries is nationalism. The idea that one country is better than another. That one country is superior to another. That's something I can have some influence on. I don't believe that. 
And I may actually be able to influence others around me in any given context that that's not true as well. Within every belief system is is this flexible edge. And if you want to have a good life, knowing that flexible edge and working with it is going to be far more productive than either blindly following the intersubjective beliefs like a sheep or fighting against them in a pointless war. There's no point in me trying to stop everyone from believing in Christianity. In fact, for me to do it, I have to put an army together and get them to believe in something I believe in. So I just replace it with some other monster. That's no help of anyone. But I might be able to talk to a person who's Christian. And I might be able to help them be a bit more tolerant towards somebody who's having an abortion. That flexible edge is where I can live by my values and exist in a way. But more importantly than all of that, I want to talk to you about what I call the movable or the flexible intersubjective. The rules that are only real if you agree on them. Now, I don't agree that France is a country, but that doesn't matter, because everybody else does. And I can't do shit about that. But let's say the rule is you must have small talk with someone when you first meet them. That one is a lot more flexible than the idea that France is a country. That one, people can be moved on. And more importantly, that one, I can move myself on. Now, I can move myself on the belief that France is a country, but even then, I'm still bound by it. Like, even though I know countries are bullshit, I still plan my holidays around going through border patrols, uh, border, yeah, border patrols, customs, flights, airports, all these things that are made up. I still plan my life around them. And when I look at a map, I go, there's France. And I simultaneously know that no countries are real, but still believe in France. I can't help myself. It's too deeply ingrained now. It'd be so hard for me to convince myself that the planet is just one big chunk of dirt, even though that's the objective truth. However, there are some beliefs I have that we all have that are a lot more flexible and can give us some wiggle room and more freedom. Small talk. Diet and exercise. Career choices. Lifestyle patterns. How busy we have to be each week. These are things that can be moved. Small talk and getting to know someone. That's the one I think I referred to first. A lot of us have this intersubjective belief that when you first meet someone, you kind of have to hold back certain truths about yourself and slowly get to know them and build up trust. This isn't written down anywhere. It's not law. It's not even a religious policy. There's nowhere that says you have to do this, and yet everyone fucking does it. It's a very unwritten intersubjective belief. And yet, quite powerful. However, unlike the intersubjective beliefs around money or law or countries, I can move people with this one. If I don't engage in small talk and I go deep instead, some people will respond by going deep alongside me. I will free them up from that fiction. The idea that you have to do small talk, I can remove that fiction for them by breaking the rule right in front of their eyes. The idea that you can't approach a stranger and talk to them. I believe that one very strongly. I know a lot of other people who do. It's not written anywhere. There's nothing illegal about doing it. If you have a clipboard and you're trying to sell something, you're more allowed to do it than if you don't. These are all complete fictions. There is no objective evidence as to what the law is around this. Not like gravity. Not like if you fall off a cliff, you'll break your leg. That's objective. Talking to a stranger being dangerous, that's not objective. In fact, I must have talked to over a thousand strangers in my life, 
It's never caused me any physical harm whatsoever. Not even once, not even a slap in the face. When I started breaking this rule, what I also noticed, uh, there's a memory I want to share with you. I uh, went up to a girl in a shopping mall, and I, at this stage I was trying to meet people and be honest with them, and this girl I found very attractive. And I wanted to stop her in a private space so that I wouldn't embarrass her. But the, the mall was just too crowded. And I thought, well, I'm not going to let her get away, so fuck it. I stopped her in front of a big crowd of people, and just, I can't remember what I said, probably something along the lines of, you know, I had to come and say hi because I thought you're absolutely gorgeous, and I just wanted to give you the kind of the gift of knowing that. I can't remember exactly how she reacted. It wasn't anything major, maybe just a smile, thank you, a little bit embarrassed, walked away. But what I do remember, as she walked away, and as she got out of my line of sight, Right behind her were these two guys who had been watching the whole thing. Now, I hadn't seen them before because she had been in the way. And these guys had their, like, their jaws open. I've never seen the drop jaw thing like this, only in cartoons. Their jaws were, like, to the ground, eyes wide open. Because the demonstration I had just put in front of them was so beyond their belief system. They didn't know that what I just did was possible. And now they did know it was possible. I just created a new potential world for them where talking to strangers, particularly talking to girls they're attracted to, right out of the blue like that, was actually an option. That's a flexible boundary at the edge of intersubjective beliefs. The idea that it's impolite or rude to speak to a stranger is still up for debate. It's not law yet. It's not enforced. It's unwritten, and therefore it's flexible. So you can do this, the art of breaking into subjective realities, you can do this on a daily basis just by being as honest as possible, by knowing what the rules are and trying to break them, and knowing which rules are worth trying to break. Put it this way, if you know for sure there is evidence that you will be harmed if you break this rule, then maybe don't break it. But you need to really know that it's evidence, not made-up stories in your head or the story from a friend about another friend who did the thing and they got hurt. That's not evidence. Evidence is, if I murder someone, I go to jail. See, look at all those millions of people in jail for murder. That's why. That's why murder is a rule. Now, there's actually nothing that says you can't kill someone. Really. In fact, you know, (laughs) it sounds bizarre, but in the world we're living in, it won't be long before overpopulation causes us to ask some pretty tough questions about what we're going to do. Murder may in fact become a sanctioned exercise in the future for human beings. For now it's not. And of course, if you're living by your values, it's very unlikely that murder is the right thing for you to do for yourself personally. But talking to a stranger? You don't go to jail for that. Threatening to kill them, you do. (laughs) But telling them that you like them, telling them that you wanted to meet them, they may react in an uncomfortable way, but there's no actual rule about it. In fact... The more comfortable you are with doing it, the more comfortable they will be with allowing it to be done. Because they're flexible on this. They think it's a rule, and they don't realize they're open to the idea that that rule can change. But if they meet someone with a stronger frame, someone who's willing to break that rule like it doesn't exist, they will actually be thrown into confusion. I I used to see this a lot. I'd go up to somebody and say, you know, I'm really attracted to you and I just want to say hi. And for the longest time I couldn't understand that their first reaction looked like disgust. The look on their face, like they were really disgusted. I used to run away at that look. Then I started hanging around to see what happens, why they look like that. 
And usually after about five seconds of the disgusted face, there would be this big smile. And I started to realize what I was witnessing was confusion, not disgust. I had just severely broken a law that they didn't even know they believed in. A rule, I should say. And then in five seconds, they decided, hey, maybe this isn't a rule. And they welcomed, you know, the free compliment. Minimalists are a great example of, of people who understand the art of breaking into subjective realities. We think that we need to own houses and property and stuff. And yet human beings survived for millennia, many tens of thousands of years, by only carrying around a few tools. And even then, if they dropped those tools, they could just make new ones. Now, we live, we're live we stuck in intersubjective reality now, where we believe in farming and mass consum- consumption and so on. So to be a forager now would be pretty fucking hard. I mean, it'd just be hard to find somewhere on the planet that hasn't been fully stripped of resources. But whether or not you need a house full of stuff that makes you stuck in that house and scared to move, that's open for debate. Like right now, I have an apartment that's full of stuff. But I'm, I'm in a new way, a new state of thinking now where I could walk away from all of this stuff. I could close the door, lock it behind me, and start fresh. I've done a lot of work on myself around attachment to objects over the last couple of years. You know, the minimalism documentary on Netflix is great for this one. Where as much as, as nice as this stuff is to have, I'm constantly aware that the more of it I have, the more it owns me. Very Fight Club style. So minimalism means letting go of stuff. Your car, your computer, all these things you think you need, if you were born without them, you don't need them. It's a Byron Katie quote. How do you know if you need something? Um, no, how do you know if you don't need something? Because you don't have it, right? The isolated tribe in New Guinea. They don't have cars. They don't need the internet. They don't have a smartphone. They can and will survive without all of those things, just as you will too. You can put your phone away. You can leave it at home. The idea that you can't leave it at home is an intersubjective, flexible rule. There are plenty of people who leave their phones at home all the time, and they're still alive. To this day, it doesn't kill them. Right? I recommend that you write down as many of the rules that you notice over time. And you won't notice them just by listening to this podcast. You'll notice them over time when you just don't do something or do do something because it's supposed to be done. Notice your beliefs in law, sporting rules, money, religion, or even non-religion. Notice your belief that you have to work 40 hours a week. Where'd you get that from? Can you find anyone who breaks that rule and still survives? Is there anyone out there who only works 3 hours a day and they're still alive? You think that you need to eat cereal and wheats and grains. Can you find anybody who doesn't eat that stuff and they're still alive? Is there anybody out there? who breaks the rules and it doesn't harm them. My life has, has really become about constantly trying to break the rules that I follow that don't serve me. And that's most of them, especially the social ones. You know, for, I, I've always wanted to dance, and yet I didn't dance for the first time until I was about 29 because I thought men weren't supposed to dance. That was just an intersubjective belief from the culture I was in, a very small one. If I was to move to Mexico or Spain... I would have experienced the opposite, all men should dance, which is again another fiction. But I missed out on dancing because I believed the rule that men couldn't, because of the macho culture I was in. It's not a rule. Dancing is an objective thing, a person moving their body, that's real. 
Whether or not you're allowed to do it and how you're supposed to do it, that's not real. You can throw your arms and legs around and no one can tell you that's not how to dance. There's no rules around this. They're just made up. <sighs> like I said, I have no idea where I was going with this talk. I'm not trying to really make a point. I'm just sharing a revelation, an inspired thought I had in relation to that book that I was reading, Sapiens. But in particular, there's the one thing I want to leave the talk with is busyness. I think it's the rule that almost everybody follows. We call people who don't follow it lazy. We call ourselves lazy when we don't follow it. And there's a derogatory term. And yet if you go back thousands of years, you'll find that our ancestors probably only worked about 20 hours a week, probably less, and had more fulfilling lives than us. With all the technological advances we've made, we're busier than we've ever been. More of our time is consumed by working for somebody else than it is by serving our own pleasures and enjoying our lives. And we think this is the right way to do things, and yet clearly it's not an objective truth. Just because everybody does something doesn't mean it's true. And it certainly doesn't mean it's good to do. So when you look at your life and see how busy you are, trying to make everybody else happy, trying to earn money, and so on and so forth, just know that that's all a lie. The making other people happy, the making the money, the busyness itself, those are all fictions. None of them are objective truths. These days I probably average about five hours work a day. I'm trying to get that down. And my quality of life's actually gone up, not down, from when I work 65 hours a week. I hope this is helpful. I really recommend you read the book. He puts it a lot better than I do. And I want you to just question the reality you live in. You're plugged into a matrix. You can't unplug yourself. Too many other people are on board with the lie. But there are some flexible edges that you can, that you can move. That you can change yourself and you can even help others change. I'll see you guys next time.